and we start the show with breaking news. The New England Patriots have signed wide receiver Kenny Britt. Yes, Kenny Britt is a Patriot. If I love a player, he eventually finds his way to the Patriots. Right? I mean, Brandon Cooks, Chris Hogan, now Kenny Britt, soon Jeff Janis. Yes, yes. Need to mention Jeff Janis's name in every show. Find a way, reverse engineer a way to get his name in a show. What do you think of this transaction, Matt Kelly? It's a transaction. A transaction happened to the NFL. Oh, the transaction has usurped the action in sports, right? We care more about where Kevin Durant signs than how he plays after he signs with the new team. The games are secondary to the wheeling and the dealing that happens throughout the season and especially in the offseason. There's more interest in the NBA in July than there is during the season. Remember how interested we were in the Paul George saga, eventually traded to the Oklahoma Thunder, and now what? No one's talking about Paul George. No one's interested. If anything, the Paul George trade is getting mocked because Victor Oladipo has been more productive. And the plight of Victor Oladipo highlights just how overrated Russell Westbrook is as a player. I've said it before. I will say it again. Russell Westbrook is the most overrated sportsman evidenced by the success his teammates have once they leave Russell Westbrook's side. There's not a player in the NBA who played with Russell Westbrook who didn't find more success elsewhere. Eventually, that matters. Enough of those instances stack up where you have example after example after example. You have Kevin Durant winning championships in Golden State. Eventually, yes, we agree with you, Podfather. Russell Westbrook is overrated. There, I said it. Oh, is it that hard to say? It's only the most obvious concept to understand Russell Westbrook's overratedness. But we started the show talking about Kenny Britt. How Kenny Britt talk quickly devolved into Russell Westbrook is overrated talk, record time, I do not know. My ability to diverge from the topic of discussion is prolific. I'm a prolific diverger. Even when I'm just having a conversation alone in front of a microphone, I'm not even talking to anyone and I'm diverting myself from a point I was trying to make about Kenny Britt. Kenny Britt becomes the Patriots' number four receiver. So in fantasy football, it's not an interesting transaction. It's just not. It's the equivalent of Michael Floyd signing with the Patriots in 2016. It's irrelevant. He won't be getting snaps and targets. Therefore, he's not a player you need to worry about in fantasy football. But it is interesting. It's interesting that the Patriots signed a player who we thought looked like the most efficient receiver in the NFL in 2016. I mean, go to the Kenny Britt profile on playerprofiler.com and pay attention to that target premium metric. In 2016, on the worst offense in the league, which has become one of the best offenses in the league in less than a year, with the St. Louis Rams, the St. Louis version of the Rams, Kenny Britt's plus 36.5 production premium was number two in the NFL. And when you also factor in his yards per target, his contested catch rate, which was well over 50%, you must conclude that he was the most efficient receiver in the NFL because he posted over a thousand yards on the Rams. The the Rams, the Jeff Fisher Rams, starting a 21-year-old rookie quarterback, that Rams team. The target premium illustrates Kenny Britt's 
per target production above or below the other receivers in that passing game. He was overwhelming the other receivers on the Rams with his production on a per-target basis. 36.5% better than the other Rams receivers. That's what that target premium means. That's extraordinary. That's why I was drafting Kenny Britt in fantasy football in 2017 in hopes that this efficiency would carry over when he switches teams and he would be productive in Cleveland, potentially a better situation than he found himself in in St. Louis. But that never materialized. I don't know why. I don't know what happens. I don't understand the inner workings of these athletes. I don't have a 3D schematic of Kenny Britt's anatomy. I don't have a blueprint of his mental state. I don't know what he's doing when he's not on the football field. I don't know what he's thinking at any given moment. I don't know what happened. He certainly looked washed when you concede snaps to Ricardo Lewis and Rashard Higgins. You're washed. You're Dwayne Bow 2.0. The Cleveland Browns did it again. Signed a wide receiver just as his career was about to collapse. Right? <laughs> but it looked like the right move. As I said, I liked the move. I liked the signing. I thought Kenny Britt was the best value free agent wide receiver available. I can't believe I'm saying this out loud, but I'm admitting it. Oh, again, the Podfather was wrong. He was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong about Jeremy Macklin. I am wrong about Kenny Britt. It seems the 29-year-old wide receiver prototype is where I am most prone to fail in my evaluation. Yes. I suck at evaluating 29-year-old wide receivers changing teams. If you're a 29-year-old wide receiver changing teams, I'll probably get it wrong. Yes, dead wrong. So will Kenny Britt be productive on the Patriots? Probably not, because the opportunity will not likely materialize, but it could. At any point in time, Brandon Cooks could be injured. Chris Hogan has been injured for a large swath of games. And Danny Amendola is famously injury-prone. So I don't know whether Kenny Britt will get an opportunity, but I suspect that Tom Brady has a fountain of youth in store for Kenny Britt. If the opportunity presents itself, I think Kenny Britt will be productive. If he can rise to that number three wide receiver chair on that Patriots offense, I think that we will hear from Kenny Britt in the playoffs. If an injury befalls one of these Patriots receivers, there's a possibility that he was simply demoralized in Cleveland and that the same player we saw in St. Louis could resurface in New England. Because that's possible, I believe it was a smart signing for the Patriots, as usual, right? Here come the Patriots again with another inexpensive, high upside signing. That's what they do. Low risk, high reward. There should be a plaque above the Patriots front office that just reads low risk, high reward in huge letters above the door because that's what the Kenny Britt signing represents. Don't be surprised if we're in the AFC championship game. Suddenly Kenny Britt is receiving heavy snaps and scoring a long touchdown. He has that in his range of outcomes. I think he is that guy. We've never seen Kenny Britt paired with a competent quarterback. Have we? At any point in time, do you remember Kenny Britt lined up to the right or the left of a great quarterback? <laughs> if you can think of one, let me know at Roto Underworld on Twitter or email us rotounderworld at gmail.com. I don't recall. So I'm interested to see what Kenny Britt looks like with quality quarterback play.
If nothing else, just give me that. Let me see that. A few brief instances of that. Just a few moments on the football field seeing Kenny Britt with Tom Brady. I want to see it. I want to be proven wrong on Kenny Britt once and for all. Show me Kenny Britt running the wrong route. Show me Kenny Britt dropping a pass from Tom Brady. Show me Kenny Britt unable to get separation on the Patriots in that offense. And then I will finally concede, yes, I was as wrong as I was the wrongest of the wrong on Kenny Britt, and I will pay the consequence. Yes, the consequence is nothing, nothing. It's fantasy football. It doesn't matter. There is no payment required for an incorrect forecast of a football player. Either way, I will continue on with my life and rarely, if ever, think about Kenny Britt. But for now, for this moment, I am thinking about him, and I'm quietly optimistic. And I'm optimistic about the team he left, the Browns. Yes, I think the Browns are coming. They are very, very close. Last week, it was a heartbreaking loss, overtime loss to the Packers. That loss to the Packers gave the Packers hope that they could make the playoffs with the return of Aaron Rodgers. And there's Aaron Rodgers on Instagram. I'm cleared! I'm back! And I appreciated Aaron Rodgers' injury because it allowed us to see what the Packers were without Aaron Rodgers. It exposed the Packers' front office and the Packers' coaching staff. Just incompetent, bumbling buffoons in those management positions in Green Bay. Because it is a crime what they have committed not surrounding Aaron Rodgers with the requisite supporting cast to win a Super Bowl with that kind of talent under center. They should be competing for a Super Bowl every year. And yet it feels like a Herculean task for Aaron Rodgers to will that team into the playoffs. And then with each successive game, it feels more and more impossible for Aaron Rodgers to overcome the odds. The odds are stacked against him. Why? Because it's a talent-deficient roster. Because the play calling and the in-game moves by Mike McCarthy and his staff are below replacement level. They are suboptimal. Just look at the play calling on fourth down. Mike McCarthy has the playbook on what not to do. But I'm trying to talk about the Browns. How did this happen? I have a fully formed opinion of the Browns and the direction of that franchise, and somehow it devolves into blowtorching Mike McCarthy. (laughs) Why? Stay focused. Yes, it was a heartbreaking loss for the Browns in week 14. And similar to Sam Hinkie's fate in Philadelphia, Cleveland fired Moneyball, in quotes, general manager Sashi Brown in the team's darkest hour. At the very darkest moment, that's when Sashi Brown was fired, just before the dawn. And that is the single most heartbreaking part of this story. The Browns are close. They're actually close. And the offense in particular is ready to ascend. Look no further than Josh Gordon. I didn't have a Josh Gordon take earlier this season. I said, I don't know what Josh Gordon is. I'm happy to find out, but it's unprecedented that a player would take three years off and then seamlessly return to form as one of the league's top receivers. That's just not something I've ever seen because it's completely unprecedented. And I'm excited to just watch and enjoy Josh Gordon's return to the league, regardless of how well he plays. It's simply a great story, overcoming adversity, addiction to alcohol, and other substances. At least for now, he's done it. So let's celebrate Josh Gordon, because he exemplifies what a size speed specimen looks like in the NFL. At his pro day, he ran around a 4-5, but 
when you factor in his size, he's 6'3", 225, that speed score on playerprofiler.com, 106.0, 85th percentile. His best comparable player on Player Profiler is Allen Robinson. I think he has a lot of Allen Robinson to his game. I don't hear that comparison often, but I think those two players are similar. Gordon is big, he's explosive, and he has ball skills. When the ball is in the air and multiple players go up for it, you expect Josh Gordon to come down with it. That's the difference between Josh Gordon and many of the other receivers in the NFL. In contested situations, you assume Josh Gordon will convert that contested catch. And we can't forget that at age 22, Josh Gordon was the NFL's leading receiver in just 14 games with Jason Campbell, Brian Hoyer, and Brandon Weed. Brandon 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 Whedon at quarterback. Excuse me. If Josh Gordon had played in 16 games, extrapolate those statistics out, it's 100 receptions for 1,800 yards and 10 touchdowns. That's Calvin Johnson-level production. So let me get this straight. You put Allen Robinson and Calvin Johnson in one of these particle acceleration chambers, you open the door, out steps Josh Gordon. Wow, right? Wow! So it's time to get excited about Josh Gordon. And you can get excited about Corey Coleman because Corey Coleman and Josh Gordon had the same stat line last week. Josh Gordon was receiving the accolades, rightfully so. He was the receiver being celebrated, but Corey Coleman is making a comeback as well. Comeback from broken hands and strained hamstrings. The broken promises of a first-round pick. Yes, he has underproduced his draft capital. Absolutely. He is an underperformer, but he has an opportunity now, finishing out the season, across from Josh Gordon. To flash! That's all we want to see. Just a couple splash plays. We want Corey Coleman to flash next to flash. Double flash. Corey Coleman is actually the fastest receiver on that team. Corey Coleman is the only receiver in the player profiler database comparable to Odell Beckham Jr. Talk about players with yards after the catch ability. At Baylor, a common play was five-yard curl to Corey Coleman, let Corey Coleman break tackles and score a touchdown. He is very, very difficult to tackle with the ball in his hands, similar to Golden Tate and Jarvis Landry in that way. And that's what we love about Odell Beckham Jr. He's both a downfield playmaker, but also difficult to stop with the ball in his hands. That's why Odell Beckham Jr. is so great. He wins downfield, and he wins close to the line of scrimmage. And that's Corey Coleman. And the Browns have the perfect young quarterback to leverage the rare downfield playmaking ability of Josh Gordon and Corey Coleman. I think Deshaun Kaiser is the heir to Carson Wentz, the NFL's next DGAF gunslinger. You might say, well, Deshaun Kaiser, he's a bust. Deshaun Kaiser's a bust. Deshaun Kaiser's a bust. Deshaun Kaiser's only 21 years old. Since when are we labeling 21-year-old quarterbacks busts? When has that ever been a good idea? Was it a good idea when we did it to Jared Goff? No. Bad idea. Just like labeling Deshaun Kaiser a bust at this point is a bad idea. Deshaun Kaiser has already thrown 65 deep balls, and he's top 12 in deep ball completion percentage on playerprofiler.com. He's top three in total deep pass attempts, and he hasn't even started all the games. Think about that. So he doesn't have a full complement of snaps under center and still top three in deep ball attempts at just 21 years old. Let that sink in. Start to put these pieces together. Wow, the Browns seem to have a quality offense. Uh, That's because they do. And don't forget, a Joe Thomas-anchored offensive line. 
and the running game is in good hands with Duke Johnson, who dominates in all phases. And I believe as the stakes rise for the Browns' offense, as they become more competitive, the Browns will allocate more touches to Duke Johnson. They have to. I think they will. I really think they will, because look at his annual efficiency. Last year, he was top three in yards per touch, juke rate, which is evaded tackles per touch, and breakaway run rate, runs of 15 yards or more per carry. This year, Duke Johnson's production premium is plus 39.5. That's Duke Johnson's production above or below expectation on a per-touch basis. Plus 39.4 is number two among qualified running backs. And that yards per touch, it's 6.5. So it's steady. We talk about how the hyper-efficient seasons rarely carry over year to year. Case in point, Tevin Coleman. Well, in the case of Duke Johnson, it is carrying over. And that's impressive. The Browns have a running game. They also have a man beast at tight end. David Njoku is only 21 years old as well. This is the legacy of Sashi Brown, leaving behind a war chest of draft picks and young players with impressive talent profiles. Look at David Njoku, a 132.197th percentile burst score. This guy can do a 360 windmill slam of the football over the goalpost. His 1030 catch radius is 92nd percentile. And last year at Miami, (laughs) David Njoku posted the most impressive, most mind-bending stat I've seen in recent years. 11-plus yards after the catch per reception for David Njoku. (laughs) That's like a riddle how that's even possible. But he did it. And he's one of the NFL's youngest tight ends. And whenever the ball is thrown in his direction, you hold your breath. Because you feel like something spectacular is about to happen. David Njoku also looks like he was made in a lab, but to be a more dynamic Travis Kelsey. Because that's what we love about Travis Kelsey. The yards after the catch ability. We had a buzzard right in. Yes. I received multiple versions of this tweet on Twitter last week. You running a victory lap after Alvin Kamara's concussion was disgusting. What? The fuck are you talking about? What the fuck are you talking about? I'm an Alvin Kamara fanboy. I needed Alvin Kamara to play in week 14. Most of my fantasy teams have been eliminated from the playoffs primarily because of Alvin Kamara's injury. We have a dynasty league for patrons only. And if you listen to the show and you enjoy the show, you should become a patron. Go to patreon.com. Search Podfather or just go to playerprofiler.com forward slash podcasts and click learn more to become an official minion or buzzard. Supporters of this show get Underworld swag, an official t-shirt or hoodie from me made in the USA. Well, maybe not made made. I do an extra show every week called the Backstage Pass for patrons only. And we have these listener leagues. So please go to patreon.com now and become an official member of this community. I do the show for the patrons. They're who I care about. They reap value in listening to the show and they return value back to me in the form of a patron contribution. And if you're not doing that, then you're a free rider who is taking advantage of the generosity of your listener brethren. Because without the patrons, this show would not be possible. So when I sit in front of this microphone, I'm doing a show for the patrons and the patrons only. You're who I care about. And I'm in this league with 11 other patrons. 
It's a dynasty league, and I have Alvin Kamara, and I was clipped in the playoffs by less than 10 points. We can all assume that Alvin Kamara would have scored an additional 10 points had he not been concussed. So I was hashtag sad this weekend, specifically because Alvin Kamara was injured, and that injury nuked my chances at multiple championships. So in what world would I be celebrating an Alvin Kamara concussion? My opinion, which was shared by David Kitchen and Heath Cummings, was that simply Alvin Kamara's production was unsustainable. And the fact is, variants did make an appearance on the Alvin Kamara game log in the form of an injury. Oh, Fantasy Mansion predicted an Alvin Kamara injury. Way to celebrate it, you sick fuck. What? Kamara simply underperforming in week 14 would have been one thing, but leaving the game with an injury was worst case scenario. The last thing I wanted. I find it hugely unsettling when players are injured, particularly when their brains are damaged with concussions. I've devoted entire shows lamenting player safety in the NFL. Go to YouTube, type in NFL Roman Holiday, and you can hear my complete viewpoint on the moral conflict that the NFL creates inside me because it's blood sport. The violence is unsettling, but the violence is also what makes the sport so compelling. And an injury was in Alvin Kamara's range of outcomes, especially because Alvin Kamara is built like a satellite back. When Duke Johnson gets a concussion, it's waved around as proof. See, 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 Johnson's not built to handle a full workload. The reason Kamara's production was unsustainable is his New Orleans touch distribution, which was driven by a perceived inability to maintain health in the face of huge volume, did not provide Kamara enough touches to be a 20 fantasy points per game running back, which is impossible to sustain. Given the Saints' touch distribution, they give more touches to Mark Ingram week in, week out, because the perception is that Mark Ingram can handle a full workload, Kamara cannot. Hence the volume disparity, which required the tempering of expectations and a consistent throttling of the Kamara weekly projection, which we talked about with both David Kitchen and Heath Cummings. The injury possibility was baked into the expected variance for Alvin Kamara all along. I didn't call an injury to Alvin Kamara, but I was expecting variance. That's the difference. I was quietly optimistic, yet realistic. I mean, that's what the show is, is it not? Isn't that the very definition of the show? Quietly optimistic, enthusiastic about players, yet tempered with cold realism. Kamara's week 14 is the outlier performance that proves the rule that myself and many other analysts warned about with Alvin Kamara. But no one is running a victory lap. That would be sadistic. But buzzards in this audience lost their matchup, largely because of Alvin Kamara's injury and their lashing out. That's how it comes to be that I get blowtorched on social media for no reason. Now, that's disgusting. The Carson Wentz injury was also disgusting and heartbreaking, devastating, devastating to Eagles fans, Eagles players, and any fantasy gamer rostering an Eagles player. But I've been receiving this burning question on Twitter. Oh, can the Eagles still win a Super Bowl fantasy mansion? Well, hey, hey, Podfather, can the Eagles still be competitive? Super Bowl? Uh, Super Bowl? You're talking about Super Super Bowl? You're talking about a, a Super Bowl? A Super Bowl with Nick Foles? They'll be lucky to win a playoff game. 
Super Bowl. Nick Foles. <laughs> I mean, what? Carson Wentz is the reason the Eagles are 11-2. and two. He's number two in total fantasy points behind only the GOAT, Russell Wilson. And get this from Neil Dutton, writing for Rotoviz, at ndutton13, reminds us that Carson Wentz was having the best season for a second-year quarterback since 2010. Are you not impressed yet? Still think Nick Foles can seamlessly lead the Eagles to a championship? <laughs> Carson Wentz's production is not simply impossible to replace. It's impossible to even approach. He was the great opportunity engine for that team. He's the reason they're 11-2. Now, I was critical of the Eagles drafting Carson Wentz originally because he was an old prospect who was not accurate at the college level. Let me say that again. Carson Wentz was an old prospect who did not show accuracy at the college level. That's not typically the profile you draft with the number two overall pick in the NFL draft. No, that's not the quarterback you target in the first round. That's a guy you take a chance on in the later rounds of an NFL draft. A small school guy with a big arm who wasn't accurate against small school competition? Sure, you chase the arm talent in the later rounds, but you don't invest a first-round pick in a quarterback with that prospect profile. That's my process, and I'm sticking to it. So I'll happily miss on a Carson Wentz. And this season, he proved all doubters wrong. When you go back and you look at that profile and you ignore his college resume, you see a 40 wonderlick, which was 93rd percentile. So his intelligence is off the charts, literally. 57 mile per hour throw velocity. That's in the upper percentiles. And check the agility score. Carson Wentz's agility score, 1101. That's better than most running backs and wide receivers. Any agility score under 11 is considered great for running backs and receivers, certainly for tight ends. I mean, most tight ends aren't that agile. And he's 6'5". There are very few football players in the NFL that stand 6'5 with an 1101 agility score. And the irony is that agility score is what allowed him to put his body in a position to be injured, to tear his ACL. It was that agility score that allowed him to dive into the end zone and subsequently get injured. But when you look at the workout metrics on Carson Wentz profile on playerprofiler.com, it gets your attention. This player had the raw material to be molded into something great. And at age 25, he looked great. And he's not unprecedented. I mean, Carson Palmer looked a lot like Carson Wentz at the college level. All the physical tools, but lacked accuracy at USC. So Carson Wentz is not an unprecedented player in the NFL. He's simply an outlier, but an exciting outlier. Outliers like Josh Gordon, Carson Wentz, often inspire the imagination. And when you look at what he was doing on the field this year, Carson Wentz was pushing the ball downfield. Under the passing productivity section on the player page, we have pass attempt distance. It's called quarterback air yards on other sites. We call it pass attempt distance because I think that label is more descriptive. His pass attempt distance, 4,488 yards, was fourth in the NFL, and 10.2 air yards per attempt. So in a league where the quarterbacks tend to settle for the routes with the low target depth, Carson Wentz is opting to throw deeper. 64 deep ball attempts, number five in the NFL. So he's top five in deep ball attempts, top five in pass attempt distance, top 10 in red zone attempts. So, and more importantly, red zone completion percentage. Yes, yes. 
the deep passing and the accuracy in the red zone is what allowed Carson Wentz to lead the league with 33 touchdown passes thus far. Carson Wentz is the modern-day gunslinger. He's the next evolution of the NFL gunslinger. This is what we want in our quarterbacks. We want them to throw the ball downfield. We want the splash plays. Give us those visceral experiences. Take chances. Enough with the ultra-careful short passing game that we get from most NFL quarterbacks. Carson Wentz was also top five in danger plays on playerprofiler.com. That includes interceptable passes and putting the football in harm's way at any point during a play. That's what a gunslinger does. He gives you the 33 touchdowns. He's airing it out, but he's also making some mistakes, and that's okay. That's entertaining football. So how does losing Carson Wentz impact the other receivers in this passing game? Well, it depends. Look at how the Aaron Rodgers and Deshaun Watson injury fallout impacted their receivers. DeAndre Hopkins has been unaffected by the Deshaun Watson injury. With Deshaun Watson, 21.1 fantasy points per game. Without Deshaun Watson, 21.6 fantasy points per game. The same can be said for Devontae Adams. 15.3 fantasy points per game with Aaron Rodgers. 16.3 with Brett Hundley. Devontae Adams has been better with Hundley. Devontae Adams was also logging a higher snap share and shadowed by number one corners even when Jordy Nelson was playing. So we consider Jordy Nelson the number two receiver in that passing game. The number two receiver is punished when that elite quarterback goes down. Jordy Nelson went from 18 fantasy points a game with Aaron Rodgers to 5.3 with Brett Hundley. Look at Will Fuller, 21 fantasy points a game. Will Fuller was up to 21 fantasy points a game with Deshaun Watson. That seems like a distant memory. Will Fuller in the top five fantasy receivers, but it's true. But without Deshaun Watson, 4.8. You might think it's impossible for any receiver to be more negatively impacted by a quarterback injury than Jordy Nelson. Wrong. It's Will Fuller. So what does that mean for Eagles receivers? Well, I think that Alshon Jeffrey will continue to get targets. He'll continue to receive 8 to 10 targets. Alshon Jeffrey's target share, like Devontae Adams, may actually increase with Nick Foles. Nick Foles' inability to go through his read progressions as quickly as Carson Wentz, the highly intelligent Carson Wentz, means Foles will be more likely to lock on to Alshon Jeffrey. So Alshon Jeffrey's target share may go up, like Devontae Adams, we may see an increase in fantasy production for Alshon Jeffrey, but not Nelson Aguilar. Nelson Aguilar is fucked. When a sub-replacement level quarterback comes in, the number three receiver suffers the most. And in that passing game, the hierarchy goes Zach Ertz, Alshon Jeffrey, then Nelson Aguilar. So Nelson Aguilar, Torrey Smith, forget it. Mac Collins, oh shit. You'll never see Mac Collins again. I think Zach Ertz will also experience a drop-off but it will be offset by the Eagles' super-friendly schedule for tight ends. The Eagles have the second-friendliest schedule for tight ends the rest of the way. Go to our seasonal rankings on playerprofiler.com. We update them every week. So even heading into week 15, we continue to update the seasonal rankings, and we still have Zach Ertz as the number three tight end in fantasy football because you look at the schedule, the remaining opponents on the Zach Ertz schedule allow 3.7 fantasy points per game above the mean to opposing tight ends. I think the target distribution will narrow, and Ertz and Jeffrey will be heavily targeted. They will become the focal point. Nelson Aguilar, Torrey Smith, they become afterthoughts. Now, I think Foles himself will also be very, very streamable. 
we have Nick Foles as the number 14 quarterback the rest of the way because the Eagles have a very quarterback-friendly schedule. Eagles opponents allow plus 3.4 fantasy points above the mean to opposing quarterbacks. And at one point in time, in 2013, Nick Foles led the NFL in yards per attempt and passer rating. That was Peyton Manning's peak season in Denver. Foles was actually more efficient. Why? The first year of a gimmick offense gives the quarterback a huge advantage. The first year of that Chip Kelly gimmick offense in Philadelphia allowed even Nick Foles to thrive. But since Chip Kelly exploded like a supernova in the sky, Nick Foles has been the NFL's worst quarterback based on the advanced metrics. He's averaging only 150 yards per game with nine total touchdowns to nine total interceptions. We all remember that famous game, Nick Foles with the Rams against the Steelers. Nick Foles was a streamer du jour that week, and he face-planted in epic fashion. Why? Because that's the real Nick Foles. And that's why if the Eagles are truly interested in winning a Super Bowl, they need to sign Colin Kaepernick.